Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. I'm Suzanne Gillespie, AMDA's Vice President, and I cordially invite you to register for AMDA's annual conference, which will be held virtually March 11th through the 14th. The agenda features expert speakers discussing topics that are on the minds of practitioners everywhere, as well as opportunities for networking and engagement with colleagues, exhibitors, and PALTC stakeholders. Visit paltc.org conference to view the schedule and register today. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for coming to our Florida Medical Directors Association Journal Club. Um, today's date is March 3rd, and this is a special edition. We wanted um, to really talk about and, and revisit vaccinations. Um, before that, I wanted to go through some, just some metrics and some state of the state updates, and then we will be joined again um, by Dr. Eber, who has, um, is paying us a second visit on our journal club and to present to us about where we're at with vaccinations. So to start, just wanted to review where we, what we're seeing um, across the United States, over 28.7 million cases, and unfortunately um, over 500,000 um, deaths. Um, we, we have seen, um, you know, the good news is we've seen a, a slowdown in um, rates of hospitalizations and rates of new cases um, across the country. And when we look at um, the positivity rate, the United States seven-day average positivity rate is at 4.26%, um, with a seven-day average confirmed cases of 65,204. What that means for us in Florida, um, our seven-day seven average positivity rate is 6.06%. Unfortunately, some um, states seem to be getting a little um, happier and um, decided to roll back um, their mandatory mask initiatives and um, mandates. Um, if you look at this, you'll see that Texas is much higher than that 5% reopening um, with a seven-day average of 12.31% and Mississippi is sitting at um, over 14%. Um, so it is interesting to see what we're seeing and hopefully um, we won't see any um, worsening. I will tell you that from where I sit in Broward County in Florida, which is South Florida, we have, you know, I, I received an alert this morning that um, our county hospitals um, are now experiencing surges in their ERs. So that was a little alarming. So more to come. Um, hopefully we're, we're not going to see another um, peak in cases. Just to look a little bit deeper in Florida, you know, on Monday we had over 7,000 new daily cases with a positivity rate of 5.69% as of on Monday. In the long-term care space, we're doing really well with um, both our um, um, percentages of positive residents and staff being way under um, one. Um, so that is good news. And when we look at where we're at with vaccinations as a country, 
you know, we have over 26 million people being fully um, vaccinated. Um, that's like 10.2%, um, well, 7.9% of the, the total um, population. And we know for herd immunity, we need to be much higher than that. So we wanted to just highlight the fact that Johnson & Johnson's vaccine received the EUA um, on Saturday. And I think that we're all very much aware of that great news. That's a one um, single dose um, vaccination. And um, as of yesterday, there was an announcement for that Mer Merck and Johnson & Johnson will be teaming up, which is like amazing, um, to pro mass produce the vaccinations and that Hopefully by the end of May, we'll have enough vaccines for every adult. Um, that's been the headline <laughs> over the last couple of um, days. So what we're seeing and what we're hoping for is, um, you know, more vaccinations and to make more people confident with vaccines. And this is where I want to bring in Dr. Leslie Eber, who so kindly talked to us a few months ago about vaccinations. And, you know, we're going to hear from her again and see where we're at. Thank you so much, Diane. I'm just gonna pull up my slides and then we'll start our slideshow. It's really an honor to be here again. Thank you so much for having me. So what we'll talk about today is, are we there yet? We must be there already, but we are not quite there yet. We continue to have some challenges with COVID-19 vaccination in post-acute and long-term care. And what we're going to address today is our current situation. Many facilities have already had their third clinic or it's coming up. And where do we go from here? There are also still residents and staff members who have chosen not to get vaccinated. And what are the steps at this point that we could take that would be thoughtful strategies to help with vaccine hesitancy? Okay. so. COVID-19 vaccination education needs to change and um, address the new issues that people are concerned about. Many people, of course, know a lot of people who've already had the COVID-19 vaccine and hearing about their experiences. But a recent publication from the CDC, the MMWR, published on February 5th, you know, even though this is preliminary data, shows that over the first month of all of the staff members in post-acute and long-term care uh, facilities that were part of the federal program that were offered the vaccine, only 37.5 as a median of the staff chose to get that vaccine. So clearly we still have some work to be done. COVID-19 vaccine education needs to be relevant, up-to-date, and absolutely address current concerns. What about the variants, anaphylaxis, do I only need one dose? All these things are what questions that staff and residents have now, and it's important to address those. But the key ingredient really in doing this final mile of COVID-19 vaccination is trust within our facilities. It's really the day-to-day -day lived experience that engenders trust. And people are not only looking for information, they are looking for some affirmation. They wanna feel seen and heard and respected. They wanna understand who their messengers are and what the message is. But really underlying all of these concerns may be from staff members 
maybe they don't have my best interest at heart. Maybe they just want to tick up their vaccination rate in our facility, but they're not truly thinking about me. And that's really the, the main issue for many of our staff members. Demonstrating that you care about the person and are invested in your staff is really the key to continuing this conversation. So what hinders trust with the COVID-19 vaccine in this moment during the pandemic? And we do have a couple of barriers. So the first is previous inconsistencies in COVID-19 information. We've changed our uh, guidance several times, including with masks and hydroxychloroquine, and this makes trust a little bit more uh, elusive. New and, uh, news and social media giving equal weight to different opinions is often not very helpful. Maybe masks don't work, maybe they do work, and putting them on equal ground can sometimes make people question, who should I trust? The lack of transparency during the pandemic has been significant, both at a local and national level, and also the wrong message getting out there. What we found, and research backs us up on this, is sometimes one personal story about a negative experience may resonate with folks even more than the positive experiences of millions. And we need to understand that folks are, are having those influences. Abstraction, if specific questions and details are not shared and we don't fill in the gaps, people will fill in their own gaps with information found elsewhere. This may be reliable or not. It can lead to inaccurate messages and overall confusion. And then the facility culture. Having open and transparent culture on the facility level is key in order to build trust. And sometimes during this pandemic, this has been hugely challenging. It, is, it was hard to say sometime in the middle of this pandemic, look people in the eye and say, we don't have enough PPE for you to do your job safely. That was a hard statement to make. And so facility culture and transparency can be elusive. So there are principles to increase trust and acceptance of the COVID-19 vaccine. And really working within people's identities and moral values is key. People are unlikely to do something unless it's consistent with what they believe in. Finding the common ground between what you hope to achieve and what matters to the person you're speaking with is really the pathway to success. Rather than investing any time at all to messages that try to convince people otherwise, it's really worthwhile to understand what they see as right and wrong and then connect with them at that level. And timing matters too. Now, we at this point would never be the first person, people to this to the table to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, people do tend to believe the first ideas that they hear, but sharing new content about the COVID-19 vaccine is helpful and relevant and can lead to credibility. Talking about the new variants, what is occurring locally, and sharing those new, that new information is really important to people. They want to know this. They also want to understand the positivity trends in their area. Repetition is also important. As you see, repetition is also important. Sometimes people need to hear things three or four separate times to really have it resonate within them. So this is an opportunity to clarify and make sure that people have the right information. So now let's talk about the messenger. Messengers need to have, of course, ideally, a history of trust within your facility. 
Trusted lay leaders can also help, CNAs and nurses that are role models, and influencers. Influencers are often not the most popular people in your facility, but they are the people who, when they speak, everybody listens. Community leaders, such as local faith and spiritual leaders, can really help bring this message to, um, to your staff in a different way, pre uh, presenting that it is an opportunity to protect and help each other. But it's very clear from the research that most people want to receive their information about the COVID-19 vaccine from people they kind of know, not always just uh, national leaders, but local experts that they can trust. So now let's talk about the message. Providing concrete, valuable information is important. It's also incredibly important to not underestimate what people can understand. Don't talk down to them. Build your message around specific and common questions. One of the facilities that I know had the idea of putting a question box about COVID-19 um, vaccine questions. People can put in their questions in the box anonymously. And then every week they talk about those questions, answer them for everyone to hear, because often if one person has that question, several people do. And then they're building their message around that, those questions. I also like to flip things from the negative to the positive. Things like control and choice, this is an opportunity to empower people to make their own choice based on facts and knowledge. In terms of regret, people sometimes say, gosh, maybe I'll regret getting the vaccine. And often we can flip that and talk about maybe you might regret not getting the vaccine and providing that additional protection to your family, to your residents and coworkers, especially when getting the vaccine can be challenging. Providing specific details as we talked about before and opening the conversation with a question. What would you like to know more about? So here are the most common questions that people ask about, and I'm happy to share these slides and then Diane can send them out to all of you. Oh, I always tend to review what we know about the vac vaccine efficacy and safety, adding in the Johnson & Johnson information and answering that strategic question, was it developed too quickly? letting people know that no steps were skipped or missed. The FDA didn't lower their standards, they actually raised them. Okay. And not only do you, what you say is important, but how you say it. I think this is one of my, our most important slides. It's important to humanize the person that you're talking to. It's a conversation, not a script. And then finding out what people are most fearful of. Is it autism, Guillain-Barre syndrome? There's a great podcast on the Annals of Internal Medicine with Dr. Kimberly Manning from Emory. And she says, and I love this, don't just wab your finger when you're telling people about the COVID-19 vaccine. It is a engagement, a conversation. It's not like talking with your kids. And it's important to know you don't have to seal the deal. We are not used car salesmen. I have had a lot of success with leaving those conversations open. I had um, with our first vaccine clinic, I talked to two staff members and one resident, and we didn't, um, I didn't ask them at the end, so are you going to get the vaccine? I left it open and I thanked them for the conversation. It ended up that all three of those folks did get the vaccine on that vaccine clinic day. Take your time, show you care, 
practice compassionate listening. True listening is palpable. People can tell if you're just doing this because you have to, but you're not invested in the conversation. And don't be afraid to leave some quiet spaces. Have people process what you're saying and give them time to respond. People respond to what they feel and demonstrating your investment in your staff is always um, ideal. Always show respect. These are frontline workers who have risked their lives every day to do their job. And then this is a, a trick that I do every time I talk to someone. I build my narrative by combining both facts and my personal vaccine story so that we start having a true and authentic relationship during the conversation. Community relationships with vaccines need to be um, acknowledged and talked about. Different communities have different relationships with the vaccines. There have been decades of mistrust and exploitation that have led to fear and profound lack of trust of vaccines, and that is completely understandable. We need to respect those experiences talking with an individual and not at them and validating their past experience with respect for their emotions. Sometimes community leaders and role models can be very influential. And it's important also to talk about the clinical trials that we are not quite there yet, but we have improved our diversity in these clinical trials. People wanna know, was I in the clinical trial? Were people like me in the clinical trial? And it's important to talk about that as well. Addressing social norms is also very influential. Social norms influence human behavior, and we know this. Peer groups are very influential. You can use FOMO, fear of missing out, to your advantage, and highlight influencers as role models who have gotten the vaccine, and reinforcing positive behavior. This is one of my favorite slides in our slide deck, the innovation diffusion curve. It explains kind of where we are now. We know that um, the more vaccinations that are given and the more innovators and early adapters that the people see getting the vaccine, the more people will change their minds about getting the vaccine. Many pragmatists and skeptics will accept the vaccine after they see these early change agents get it. It's a dynamic process. And so the take home message of this slide is that we have more of an open door than we realize. Coming back to staff members and rediscussing their issues, their concerns, that can be enormously beneficial and can lead to vaccination. And this and research have, has proven this. So we have an opportunity. Now I thought we would discuss addressing social media and medical information. This has been an enormous and profoundly influential about the COVID-19 vaccine, unfortunately. And it's important to have a strategy about how to address social media misinformation because it can get underneath our skin a little bit. Um, the first thing I noticed that I have trouble with is um, I feel like my heart rate goes up and I kind of get personally uh, a little bit offended or mesmerized by this misinformation. So it's important to not take the misinformation personally. Listen first, people want to be heard, show respect, and really you have to come into the conversation to celebrate the fact that the person thought enough of you to have the conversation. They trusted you enough to ask questions. 
It's important to go into these conversations with the goal to not prove the person wrong. Nobody wants to be humiliated or feel unintelligent. That is not going to lead to a pathway of vaccination. So more about how to address social media misinformation. Try to assess why the information is resonating with the person. Take the opportunity to redirect them to more trustworthy information sources like the CDC and explain to them what we know to be true medically at this moment. Also ask them to consider where is this information coming from and why is it so popular? Is it sensationalism? Does it look extraordinary? Is it a fact and has it been proven? There are also some uh, language that you can use during these conversations about social media that can be very helpful. You can acknowledge the concern. I see you've been thinking about this a lot and it's really important to you. Don't shut the conversation down. We want to encourage the discussion. And you can ask questions like, tell me where you heard about this information. Do you trust the source? Never be condescending. Um, this is a person who trusted you to have the conversation. So avoid strongly negative word like that's crazy. Offer to trade sources and explain what we, you know medically. Another idea is to acknowledge the questions that folks have. That's a good question. Let's talk it through. Again, the point is not to prove the person wrong. Evoking positive emotions can be compelling. Um, we know that fear immobilizes people and shame is ineffective. Nobody wants to feel that way. It is not a pathway to vaccination. But research has shown that emotions of pride, hope, parental love can inspire action and lead to vaccination. Giving a message of hope and a positive sense of self we're helping the community, you're protecting your family, your residents, your coworkers, you're doing your part to end the pandemic. I also always try to throw in that it is a pathway to getting our lives back and that's okay. Imagine how good it will feel if you could go out with three friends for a cup of coffee with no masks, that would be great. And to do it safely so that you know you're doing the right thing. These are emotions that can promote. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Vaccination. Motives matter. 
We have to consider the motives of the information seeker. Sometimes fear can lead to actively seeking information and lead to people looking at social media. We need to understand that. And then fear of repercussions in terms of immigration and health. We also want to look at the motives of the information sharer. Be transparent and honest about your motives. I am not doing this so we can hit that 80% mark for our staff vaccination rate. I hope you get the vaccine because I want you to be all right. Honesty builds trust, but always name the issues. Don't kind of hide that in the conversation because then the conversation stales. Spread the word and make it fun. This is an incredible moment. Are we so lucky that we have these now three vaccines? They're effective, they can save lives. We wanna create a celebratory um, atmosphere around getting the vaccine. We want to use stickers and buttons. This sounds kind of silly, but research shows that these things are effective. When you use stickers and buttons and posters, it really does motivate some more people to get the vaccine. Create a vaccine wall of fame with pictures of staff getting the vaccine and captures, um, I'm getting my vaccine because, and these ideas can be very compelling and, and effective. So now let's talk about continuing COVID-19 vaccination in post-acute long-term care now. Most of us are either headed towards our third vaccine clinic or are already done. AMDA's just uh, completed a strategy paper, which was completed yesterday. And I know that Diane will share this paper with you on continued vaccination, COVID-19 vaccination in post-acute and long-term care. The CDC on um, February, I believe it's 8th, um, explain three options for post-acute and long-term care facilities to continue COVID-19 vaccination. You can partner with a long-term care pharmacy that's enrolled in your state COVID-19 vaccine provider system. You can partner with a pharmacy that's enrolled in the federal retail pharmacy program. Now the federal retail pharmacy program has not been yet allocated vaccine yet. And so there may be a delay if your long-term care pharmacy is using the federal program. And if you're a facility that feels you can do this, you can enroll directly with your state to be a COVID-19 vaccine provider. In looking at these three options and talking to multiple facilities, AMDA found that probably option one and option two are the most viable. But the first step is to connect with your local um, long-term care pharmacy and ask them, are you getting vaccine? Are you um, a state vaccine provider? Um, can you help us out with continued vaccination? It's clear that we may need a bridge plan to get those second vaccines inoculations for folks who have had their first um, vaccine shot during a third clinic. And ways to do that is connecting with your local and state health departments and seeing if they can help you. You can connect with retail pharmacies to see if they have vaccine um, and maybe they can partner with you. And so those are two bridge plans that can be effective. The most important thing though, is to never ever pass up an opportunity to give a COVID-19 vaccine. Even if you don't know when the second, where and when the second shot will be available, we now know from data that's just published about a week ago that the first vaccine shot for either Pfizer or Moderna is very effective. So please never pass up that opportunity. 
Some further planning pearls for continued vaccination in post-acute and long-term care um, facilities is asking some question. Who will give the vaccination? Will it be the long-term care pharmacist or it will be your staff? Will you be receiving a vial or pre-filled syringes? If you get pre-filled syringes, often they need to be labeled with the person who's receiving that vaccine to ensure that there's no vaccine waste. We always have to remember that if you're getting pre-filled syringes, you have a six hour window from the moment the vial is opened. So that includes the travel time. And so you really want to understand and have a system with your long-term care pharmacy about when they open the vial and that they label the pre-filled syringes with that opening time. Who will do the reporting? And can your new admissions get their first vaccine shot in the hospital? And who is going to collect and follow up on that information? I highly, highly suggest that you have one or two, preferably two vaccine coordinators to understand storage, handling, and um, administration, as well as reporting elements. Talking with legal guardians and medical power of returning um, approval before requesting that vaccine is really important. We don't want to request a vaccine for Mrs. Jones if her so what about the data that we need for reporting and how do we coordinate with our long-term care pharmacies to be effective? Um, this was developed from the ASCP, the American Society for Clinical Pharmacists, to help us know what data we will need. So this data set will be available to you um, that will be required by all long-term care pharmacies um, providing COVID-19 vaccines for your facility administration. Finally, we talked about misinformation and disinformation on social media. It's important to know where the good stuff is. Um, these three are trusted tools and information. They're good information to share with your colleagues, with your staff, and with your residents, as well as their loved ones. So it's always good to know where to find good information. And thank you very much. Thank you for letting me come here this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Leslie. That was wonderful. I want us, you know, I, I, I don't know if anyone else has any questions, but one of the, the first questions in looking at that um, document and thinking about the COVID, um, the continuing COVID um, vaccinations and post-acute long-term care I'm just curious to know what happens um, next. I know the CDC is considering um, putting out guidance on what to do when, um, you know, if you want to gather with other people who have been vaccinated. So what are we actually seeing in the nursing facilities now? Um, are we allowing those um, residents who have been vaccinated to socialize with each other? What's happening? I think this is a great question, <laughs> and I think it's one that we're struggling with as in a community in post-acute and long-term care medicine, as well as we're seeing that the CDC and CMS are also trying to sort out what they're going to recommend. Right now, none of the guidance have changed. Um, AMDA has put out a visitation guidelines 
for where we are now. And what that AMDA document points out is the, still the things we don't know. Do we know that if we're vaccinated and we're two weeks after our vaccination, what is the likelihood that we could transmit a little bit of COVID-19 to an unvaccinated resident or staff member? And we really don't know. So I think that this is still a question. Right now with the guidances from CDC and CMS that have not changed and many states um, have been, you know, there's variability. Some states are opening up much more easily. Some states are being more cautious. So I think you need to look at your state guidance and recommendation before you move forward. See the situation in your local community. What is your community positivity rate? Um, and then review where you are for the CDC and CMS guidance for opening up for visitation. So although we are still patiently waiting for the information we need to make a scientific and thoughtful decisions on how to open up, we need to be cautious and we need to consider all of those guidances, both at the local state level and from CMS and CV CDC. So I don't know if it's one size fits all. I think it depends on your community, your situation, your positivity, and what your state is recommending. So I, I, I want to ask another question, and it's, you know, I've shared with you the, the personal experience that I had this past weekend um, of having my sister who works for um, a hospice that's affiliated with a, a large sniff chain be refused the vaccination in that third clinic. Um, not only was she refused, but all of the hospice team were, were refused and they are all now positive in the last um, week and a half for COVID, which means that I don't even know how many other people in the Tri-County area down here in South Florida are now positive for um, COVID because of the, the, the exposure um, between all the CNAs and the, um, the nursing staff it is really horrible. What do you do if you're in that, if you're there and you're the, the, the nursing home administrator, the director of nursing, the medical director, the CMO, what should you, your message be if that, you do get that type of push? I think that's a great question. And that actually happened to me personally. So I was at my third uh, clinic at, at the nursing home where I'm the medical director. And they said, oh, we're not giving any first shots. What I had done, and I was really respectful and, uh, you know, in, engaging and collaborating with the vaccine team. Um, I had um, copied and printed out the CDC recommend recommendations. It's in their frequently asked questions about the COVID-19 vaccine. And they talk about that they recommend giving a first dose even at a third clinic. And so when we talked about that these were the CDC recommendations and that our facility was going to follow those CDC recommendations, it seemed like that conversation had turned. They did have to call their lead um, pharmacist, but then they vaccinated for first vaccination, many residents and staff in my facility. It did take a conversation and it did take some persistence it's a conversation worth having, but even though the state of Colorado promotes first um, vaccinations during that third clinic, we've heard many stories where the pharmacists from Walgreens or CVS have initially refused to give those first shots. And again, we always want to empower our administrators, DONs, medical directors to have that on, our, on their fingertips, the CDC recommendations, print it out and show it to them and explain that, you know, 
our facility is going to follow these recommendations, their national recommendations, and often that opens the door. We have a question from the chat about mandating vaccinations. Um, I don't know if there are any, anyone on this call um, who's in a facility that has mandated vaccination, but um, Leslie, I was hoping you could speak to, um, speak to that for us. I'd be happy to. I think you can ask different folks what they think about it. You may get several different answers, so I'm just going to give you mine. You know, this is an emergency use authorization, so it has not been officially approved by the FDA. It's been authorized. There's a difference there. I think I have some issues with mandating a vaccine that has not been officially approved and that only has an EUA. Um, so, I, I feel that mandating the vaccine at this moment is not the right thing to do. I think down the road after approval, there are some facilities that mandate the flu shot. We know the flu shot is safe and effective. And I think that there may be opportunity down the road for mandating the COVID-19 vaccine, but I don't think that time is now. As you've, you've been doing a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of work <laughs> on this. Do we know where we're at as far as um, nationally, how, how many, um, like how much of the staff within post-acute long-term care has actually been vaccinated? I don't have those exact numbers. What I can tell you from the information that I've received is that certainly after the first clinic, those second clinics, we have seen an uptick in staff vaccination. So I'm hoping that the CDC does a second MMWR uh, publication and tells us the statistics that they've received from those federal programs for the second clinics. And I, you know, in each state that I've heard from, there's definitely been that uptick. So that's really hopeful. Um, and so I think we continue to need to open up that door, especially during those third clinics. As we saw on that innovation curve, I'm expecting that more and more staff are going to be interested in getting vaccinated. And as they see that their friends are doing well after the vaccination, and maybe some of the freedoms that, uh, that entail getting vaccination, uh, some of the um, feel, feeling that you're really not putting your family at risk as much by coming home. Uh, I think that we'll see more and more staff, I hope. But I do think it's gonna take some work still. Um, there's been a lot of studies that still say that, especially with the CNAs um, in facilities, that there is significant vaccine hesitation. And I think we need to talk about vaccine confidence and really promote that. So leaving that door open, continuing to do the work that needs to be done to have more of our staff get vaccinated, really it can not only save their lives, but the lives of everybody around them. And so I, I hope that every facility still dedicates themselves to having those conversations. It's easy to think that we're done. Are we there yet? Is it done? <laughs> but it's a work in progress. Of course, we know with staff turnover, you know, uh, just one more thing, the AMA just published a report um, that they mentioned yesterday in their morning review that the turnover rates for nurses and CNAs in long-term care facilities can range from 100 to 140%. Wow, in a year, that is remarkable. So we should expect to have these vaccine conversations, you know, it should be ongoing. 
And so I imagine that continued vaccine for COVID-19 in post-acute and long-term care medicine is going to be a process that we continue throughout the year and years to come. Yeah, and, and I really appreciate what you mentioned in, the, um, in your slides about how to have this conversation. I, I received um, a text a few weeks ago from a nurse who was worried about getting the vaccination um, because um, of, um, of issue, issues and concerns she saw on social media around pregnancy. And initially I thought she was just joking. <laughs> I was like, hey, uh, like don't believe any of that. And then she sent another message saying, no, I'm just really concerned in all of this. And I realized that this was a real concern because of what she read. And I went through a couple of, um, of sites and things that we've, we've seen and, and um, some information and what's happening with um, new trials in pregnancy and all of these things. And yesterday she got her shot. And it's just, I didn't ask her. It, I left it open-ended. I didn't tell her, now go get it. I was like, okay, you know, if you have any other questions, let's talk. And, and it really is impactful when you have that kind of conversation. And thinking about um, our, our communities um, um, uh, with people of color and, and the, the hesitation that we've seen, um, you really have to just be honest, you know, I, I, I told everyone who's, who's asked, you know, what symptoms I've had following my second shot and, you know, just, I had an honest conversation and I told them why, you know, that is why this is so important. And I think that is really impactful um, when you just approach it that way. So I really appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I agree with you. What we're trying to kind of do in these conversations is also dig a little deeper. What is what are keeping people up at night? What is preventing them from getting the vaccination and kind of getting to that kind of root cause analysis? It's almost like a coffee thing um, about, you know, what is their um, barrier and addressing those issues. Uh, another trick that I really enjoy, I didn't get a chance to talk about it, I should add a slide, um, is motivational interviewing. And this is a technique that we know is really helpful um, from our vaccine hesitancy research um, for other vaccines, the MNR uh, and so and, uh, polio vaccine. We know there's been some hesitancy. And motivational interviewing, what it is, is asking questions and opening up the conversation. And then kind of motivating, gosh, what, what do you think about the COVID-19 vaccine? Do you think you might get it? And people will say, oh gosh, no, I don't think about this and this and this. And then you would talk about some of the facts and then ask another question. Do you think that there could be an open door for you and your family to get the COVID-19 vaccine, hearing some of this new information? And what other questions do you have? So kind of leading people to action by motivational interviewing can be really successful. It's just another mechanism or strategy to have the conversation. That's really, really, really insightful. Thank you for sharing that. And um, to anyone who's asking, we'll probably try to put something up on motivational interviewing. I did have a question about, um, what do you think the possibility of doing fourth clinics and maintenance and SNFs will be? You know, what do you mm -hmm. think um, long-term possibility of that? 
You know, it would be wonderful. We knocked on the, I know that AMDO knocked on that door several times, as many states knocked on that door with CVS and Walgreens. To my knowledge, um, it hasn't really, except for maybe occasionally, really come to fruition. I think now that the CDC is investing in this um, federal retail pharmacy program, I wonder if that it will be their way to thread the needle and that those clinics may not be um, per se an opportunity. But one of the things that when we talked with long-term care pharmacies about different ideas, we did leave the door open as did the long-term care pharmacies that if you all of a sudden have seven new staff and 15 new residents that you could have a mini clinic. And I think that many long-term care pharmacies would be open to that idea. Instead of shipping you, uh, you know, five vials, and especially for Pfizer to mix it up appropriately, that they just come for one afternoon for two hours and vaccinate everybody, maybe just for an hour. So I think that, um, in individual cases, that will be a possibility. Um, but I, as a federal program, I don't see a lot of uh, signs that that's going to happen, but I, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am. <laughs> now, um, I think my final question, because I'm sorry, I'm bombarding you with tons of questions, <laughs> but I wanted to know, um, you mentioned once that in, in Colorado, there was a concern about who should give the vaccination if you're partnered with the long-term care pharmacy, if your facility is partnered. Can you speak to that? Because I think um, I, I, I think that's something that we really have to consider about the logistics of, of all of this. That is, that's been the question of the hour on my radar for the past few days. ACA has just also uh, published their kind of pearls for continued vaccination and both ACA and the um, AASCP do pose that question that different states may have different rules that if you partner with a long-term care pharmacy that's getting an allocation of vaccine from their state, they're kind of a state provider, that there may be different rules about whether they can then partner with the facility and have the facility be the surrogate um, shop giver. Um, so I think that Different states may have different rules, and I think it's important to ask the question. Where I would start with investigating for my individual facility is asking your long-term care pharmacy. So the first thing you wanna ask them is, are you getting vaccine? Are you planning to uh, participate in continuing vaccination? The answer is yes. Then my second question is, um, where is your allocation coming from? Are you part of the federal retail pharmacy program or are you a state provi vaccine provider? And then my third question is, will um, you be allowing us to partner with you so that we can give the shot? Or is your um, a collaboration with the state uh, bound by the fact that you have to, as a pharmacist, give that shot? The two issues around this is first of all, making sure that vaccine isn't wasted and it's utilized quickly. And then the second is whoever's doing the reporting, there are sometimes logistics that they have to give the shot to help with both reporting and with responsibility for that vaccine dose. So the state may be giving 40 doses to um, goods long-term care pharmacy and they're responsible for all of those doses, where do they go and that they're being utilized. 
and that may be involving the pharmacists themselves giving the shot. Uh, we saw that also with our federal clinics that were just finishing up, that there have, were some times where the facility said, gosh, um, would it help you? Could you do more clinics at once and get to us sooner if our staff helped you give the vaccination shots themselves? And the answer was that is not part of our agreement with the CDC. We not only have to deliver the vaccine to your facility for these clinics, but we as pharmacists need to give the shots. So again, that's a question. Every state might do it differently. Um, asking and partnering with your long-term care pharmacist and pharmacy is the place to begin. Thank you, Dr. Ever. Thank you, Leslie. <laughs> this, this has been wonderful. Um, if you guys, if anyone on this call have any other questions, please um, do not hesitate to shoot us an email. We will make sure we get those questions to Dr. Eber, and um, we will get everything that she mentioned up on our in our library, um, including this presentation for you. Thank you so much. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post Acute Care.